With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Hi, I'm Murray Walker, and you're listening to Beyond the Grid. Hi everyone, Tom Clarkson here, welcoming you to another edition of Beyond the Grid, presented by Bose QuietComfort 35-2 wireless headphones. Now, the upcoming Chinese Grand Prix is the 1,000th race in the history of Formula One. So how best for Beyond the Grid to reflect all of that history and passion? Well, there's only one man for the job. Third light, fourth light, fifth light... Incredible! My goodness! The third leader in two laps! Oh! My goodness! I have never seen that before! This is the opportunity that Senna's looking for! And he's going through! Out! Oh my goodness! This is fantastic! This is what we were fearing might happen during the race! Damon Hill wins the Japanese Grand Prix! And I've got to stop because I've got a lump in my throat! The iconic tones of Murray Walker, my guest this week. For several generations of fans, he remains the voice of Formula One. His commentaries for the BBC and ITV were broadcast across the English-speaking world, and he became more famous than many of the drivers on the grid. Murray did countless F1 commentaries during the 50s and 60s, but it was only in 1978 that the BBC committed to Formula One. And with that, the popularity of the sport and of Murray himself grew exponentially. There was a genuine sadness from every corner of the sport when he retired after the US Grand Prix in 2001. But his legend endures. In fact, you can hear many of his greatest commentaries in full via F1 TV. Murray is now 95 and he's less mobile than he used to be, but as you're about to find out, his brain is still pin sharp. I went to his home in the New Forest after the Bahrain Grand Prix for a catch-up. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Well, Murray, welcome to Beyond the Grid. It's such a pleasure to have you on the show. Um, First of all, how are you? I'm all right, Tom. Uh, I'm old and doddery and... uh... I've got things wrong with me that old people get, but basically I'm okay. Firing on five cylinders anyway. <laughs> five out of out of ten. Oh, yeah, five, <laughs> five out of six. <laughs> well, Murray, you look great, and it's such a pleasure to come here to your uh, home to have a chat. And Now, listen, are you a podcast fan? Tom, I paused because I was just racking my brains to find the right answer. I don't really know what a podcast is. I don't think I've ever consciously listened to one. And to the extent that I have, I just assumed it was a sort of uh, extended radio interview, which is what it is, isn't it? That's exactly what we're embarking on right here. Now, Murray, um, how up to speed are you with modern day, current 2019 Formula One? Well, I like to think I'm right, almost right up to speed. Not nearly as up to speed as I was, Tom, when... You and I work together because, uh, well, I'm, I'm not part of it now. And as you know, when you're part of it, you're talking to people all the time from different walks of life, team principals, drivers, sponsors, everybody you can think of about nothing else but Formula One. And to you and to me at that time, there wasn't anything else other than Formula One because you live in a sort of bubble and nothing else matters, Brexit and things like that. Let's not go down that route, Murray. No, we're not going down the Brexit route, <laughs> I promise you. Uh, so I'm I'm out of it, but to the extent that I'm out of it, I've tried to keep up as much as I can. Uh, I watch television, I read papers, I read magazines, and I talk to people. So I'm fairly up to speed. Did you watch the Bahrain Grand Prix? I watched every second of the Bahrain Grand Prix, yeah, and I thoroughly enjoyed it. And I felt so, so sorry for Leclerc because to 
come into Formula One as he has and get into Ferrari as he has and to lead the race as he was doing so close to the end and have something happen to him was, I, I hesitate to use the word tragic, but it was very sad. The BBC always used to say to me, Tom, you mustn't use the words tragic and you mustn't use the word disaster. They said, it's, it's not a disaster if somebody retires from Formula One. It's not tragic if somebody's engine blows up. It's tragic if 50 people are killed in an earthquake in Japan or something like that. But even taking that into account, I think it's almost tragic that Leclerc had, had the problem that he had. He's a very impressive young man. He's only 21, and he, you know, he said all the right things after the race. Um, he, you know, and he did. Let's let's face it. He and blew Tom, he blew Vettel away at the weekend. Yeah, and he and he's and he's talking in a foreign language. He speaks plenty of them. I think it's Italian, <laughs> French, Italian, he? French, well, English. I mean, yeah. I'm, yeah. I'm consumed with admiration and respect for anybody that can do that. And Murray, uh, did you know that Leclerc's mother is David Coulthard's hairdresser? No, really? Yes. <laughs> How does that happen? Well, yeah. Or Monaco, I Monaco, suppose. Monaco, yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. yes. <laughs> Next time you see David on the telly and you think his hair's looking great, you know where it came right. from. <laughs> now, Murray, let's talk um, a little bit about you and your career. First of all, was F1 a hobby or a job for you? Tom, uh, I actually started talking about what today is Formula One before Formula One existed in 1949. If you can think back that far, you probably your mother's told you about it. Uh, <laughs> a little bit before my time. When Baron Tulo de Graffenreid <laughs> won the British <laughs> Grand Prix in a Maserati. Um uh, you, you have to take into into account the fact that I was born into a motorsport atmosphere because my father was a very successful professional racing motorcyclist and he raced from before I was born until I was 12 years old. So I was either going to love motorsport or loathe it and I, lo I, I loved it and, and still do. And the answer to your question is... Uh, uh, Formula One is almost a passion with me, uh, always has been. Not to the extent that motorcycle racing is, I have to uh, tell you, rather traitorously tell you. Um, but uh, it's very, very special. Did you ever want to race yourself? Tom, I'm surprised that you're asking a question Well, I, I, like I know that, you did do a Because I, I did actually race motorcycles. I did know that. And I retired at the height of my success after I had won a 250cc heat uh, at Brands Hatch, when, when Brands Hatch was a grass track, which ran anti-clockwise. And that was the time when John Surtees was a youngster racing with his father, Jack, and Jack, Jack rode the bike and John Surtees rode in the sidecar. Um, and then I, then I took up, um, enduros on motorcycles, six-day motorcycle events. Where and did I, they take place? Pardon? Where did they take place, these enduros? In in the UK? Uh, yeah, the, the, I rode in the International Six Days Trial in Landrindod, Wells. It was based, and you, we, we went charging about all over Wales. Uh, and the Scottish Six Days Trial, I rode in that. I uh, uh, got awards in both of them. And I was fairly reasonable, Tom. I was fair to good club standard. But I knew that I was never going to be as good as my father. I did. I, I started off with delusions of grandeur that I was really going to show the old man how a motorcycle ought to be ridden. And I very rapidly discovered that I wasn't. Uh, and you know what they say, those that can do and those that can't talk about it. So I started talking about it. Uh, in 1949, got an audition at Goodwood uh, and talked about the Parnell, Reg Parnell winning a heat, a heat there in his Maserati. Uh, and then it all grew like topsy, but I had a full-time job in the advertising business. 
If, if, as I'm sure you do, you know that PAL dog food prolongs active life, P-A-L, prolongs active life. Was, uh, if you, you coined that. If you know that your cat lives long, st- stays younger, lives longer on daily kitty cat. Uh, if you know that opal fruits are made to make your mouth water. Does a Mars a day help you work rest and uh, That was, that was, was that not- uh, I, I was the, the account executive on the, and the account director on the Mars business, but I didn't actually think of that. I wish I had. But a trill makes budgies bounce with health. How does that grab you? <laughs> All of the so above, Mark. Of well, look, I want to come on to your ad career, but but did you miss the bikes when you stopped? Did you miss the adrenaline, the, the, um, the competitive side of it? When I stopped racing? Uh, no, not really, because, uh, well, you know, Tom, if you're behind a microphone, you get a lot of adrenaline flowing, and, and if you are talking to literally millions of people as I was in the BBC days, and the BBC was the sole broadcaster. It's very different now. There's umpteen different organisations broadcasting Formula One, one way or another. But when I started off, and for quite a long time, the BBC was the only Formula One broadcaster. So if you were going to listen to it, you listened to me, because you hadn't got the option. Uh, So when I stopped riding bikes... I stopped because I really knew I wasn't good enough to get to the top, which is what I wanted. Did you worry about the dangers of bike racing? No. Well, you you don't, do you? You, It's something that happens to other people. It doesn't happen to you. Uh, And I didn't really do it long enough or at a high enough level to start thinking like that. So then the ad world beckons. Um, A lot of people listening to this, I think, think that, commentating was your job but actually well it's my hobby <laughs> exactly yeah, it's my the, hobby the job yeah. the nine to five is yeah, what nine you just to five, nine to five well nine to not much more than nine to five because in the agency business you you lose a lot of business so you inevitably have to replace it with new business so i was doing a lot of new business presentations as well as working on my own accounts and that meant weekend work uh, but um it was the, the motor, what we now call motor, motocross scrambling that um, really really got me going because I, I, I'd been doing a lot of stuff on radio for BBC and Public Address and then RTV came to me and said they wanted me to work on scrambling as it was then called uh, and it, it took off like a rocket. So when did the... Um I mean, you, you've said already that, you know, when did I 1940, yes, 1949. Yeah, well, I had been doing, I had been doing a lot of stuff like the British Touring Car Championship, Formula Ford, Formula Three. Uh, BBC wasn't doing any or hardly any Formula One coverage. They would do Monaco, they would do the British Grand Prix and the Italian Grand Prix, and that was about it. Uh, and then in 1976, a chap called James Hunt uh, won, won the championship and Britain suddenly became aware of Formula One because of the glamorous image, the playboy image, the devil may care image that, that James Hunt had. Uh, and the BBC decided they were going to do Formula One. And at that time, their natural commentator was Raymond Baxter, and Raymond Baxter couldn't do it because, for a variety of reasons I won't bore you with. And they asked me to do it. And that was 1978, the Mario Andretti, Ronnie Peterson year. Uh, and then it just grew from that. And I, carry, I carried on doing the job and the broadcasting for four years until 1982. And then in 1982, I was 60 years old. I retired from the advertising business and my career broadcasting career started at the age of 60 survivor 46 is here and so is on fire the only official survivor podcast and we have a twist this season 
the winner of Survivor 45, D. Vyadaris, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. If you only have a 401k, you're not getting the most for retirement. Wait, what? Add a Robinhood IRA on top, then they'll boost it by 3%. You can do that? And if you transfer in any retirement account, you get 3% on top of that. Is there a limit to the match? No limit. Robinhood Gold gets you the biggest contribution match of any IRA on the market. Sign up for Robinhood Gold at Robinhood.com boost by April 30th. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Match on transfers subject to additional terms and conditions. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC. You had lots of people in the commentary box with you, but there were two legendary partnerships, weren't there? There was James Hunt and Martin Brundle. Let's talk about James first. You know, tell us about why that worked and what it was like to work with James. It's difficult to know where to start with James because he was a unique character, Tom. Uh, He didn't care about what anybody thought. Uh, he was an extrovert. He was a showman. Uh, he drank too much. He smoked too much. He womanized like there was no tomorrow. Uh, Sounds like you're uh, very similar. He, <laughs> <laughs> he, he, he could be the most arrogant, overbearing, objectionable person you've ever met in your life and frequently was. But all the time there was a really decent, cheerful, friendly, nice person hiding inside. And when he retired from broadcasting, um, the nice chap took over. Sorry, when he retired from racing, the nice chap took over. Uh, But I had some very difficult times with James. I had some very good times with James. what would trigger? To tell you what he was like, he, I used to uh, you rush about the paddock all the time, beavering away, talking to people, talking intensely to drivers, to principal, principals, to tyre technicians, to anybody who would talk to me about anything to do with Formula One in the hope that some of it would stick for the commentary, while James would languidly sit in the Marlborough motorhome and everybody went to him. Uh, and I would get to the commentary box an hour before the race began. James would get to the commentary box maybe maybe five minutes before the race began, and to wind me up, he would often say, who's in pole position, Murray? Uh, And uh, I used to stand up to commentate, literally on the balls of my feet with adrenaline pouring out of me by the bucket for James would sit in a sort of uh, sullen heap beside me and gesture for the microphone when he wanted it or I would give it to him when I wanted him to say something. Uh, And there were times when he hadn't really got very much to say, but when he had got something to say, it was really worth listening to. Why did it work? I was old enough to be his father, Tom. Um, And as you will gather, uh, James did a lot of things and said a lot of things that I didn't approve of, and vice versa, probably. Um, But I think it was probably partly because of that. Um, Because we grew to be tolerant of each other, I used to want the microphone. I was so excited and wanting to impart everything that I had learned and was watching that I really didn't want anybody else in the in the box with me. I didn't really want James Hunt. I was quite happy to do it all by myself. So James had that aspect to put up with. Uh, I had other aspects to put up with. Uh, James was incredibly outspoken. The trouble with Jerry, eh? He's a French Wally, always has been and always will be. Uh, and uh, used, used to say the most outrageous things and, and get away with it. And the public loved him. And on one occasion, uh, he didn't turn up at all, the Belgian Grand Prix one year. And uh, we were frantically getting retired drivers to come to the commentary box to talk to me about what it was like. 
James formed up afterwards and said he was sorry he hadn't been there, but he was in bed with a stomach complaint. Uh, it was the first time I'd ever heard two Belgian nurses called a stomach complaint. <laughs> <laughs> Would you say... That's, that, but that was James. That's, that sounds... <laughs> very true to form from what yeah. I've heard about him but <laughs> would you say you were friends by the end? Yeah oh definitely, definitely. by the end yeah. we were yeah. uh, not really at the beginning we were um, reluctant partners from my point of view um, James obviously wanted to do it um, but no we, we were alright at the end and what impact did his death? We were all right at the end, provided, oh dear, this is going to sound very arrogant, um, provided I was tolerant enough to put up with some of James's excesses. Uh, and some of James's excesses were really excessive. Um, and he had the most fearsome temper. God, he frightened the life out of anybody when he was having one of his tirades. But there you go, it... The important thing is, Tom, that it worked from the public point of view, and I suspect that it was the contrast of personalities, my talking like my trousers were on fire, as Clive James used to say, and uh, James, the relaxed public school uh, expert because he had been there and done it at the highest level. What impact did his death have on you personally? Well, it obviously had an enormous impact because I'd been working with him for 13 years, 16 times a year, four days at a time. And if you multiply 16 by 13 by four, you get a very big number. So I, I missed, literally missed, greatly missed the partnership. James was replaced with Jonathan Palmer, who did an excellent job. Um, but then ITV took over and Martin Brundle had come in at Mark Wilkin, the producer's behest, at several of the broadcasts one year and shown himself to be very good. So ITV then used him um, and the, he was the best bloke I ever worked with by what? a long chalk. Why? Because he's a nice person, because he's predictable, because he's got a good sense of humour because he's been there and done that at the highest possible level, world sports car champion, winner of Le Mans, uh, drove for eight Formula One teams, finished on every step of the podium except first, beaten, had beaten Schumacher. And he was one of those rare individuals, a, a, a top sportsman, top of his craft, who could actually talk entertainingly and interestingly about it, as he still does, bless him. He does. And the grid walk, of course, was something that yes. he started, wasn't it? No, it isn't. It's the grid walk that Murray Walker started. <laughs> I said the wrong thing there. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll when did you first I'll spare you your embarrassment, yes, I'm blushing, Murray. <laughs> but when it did you start? It happened years earlier uh, in South Africa. Uh, uh, and I, I said to um, the BBC, look, I've got an idea. Why don't you give me a microphone? And a, and a team on a steady cam, the people who walk backwards giving you the pictures. And I will just walk down the pit lane and talk to whoever I see that I want to talk to. And it will be unprompted and they, they won't be expecting me. With one exception, I primed Joe Ramirez of McLaren that I was come to, going to come to him. And I walked down the pit lane and the p last person I talked to as he leapt out of his car and cross, crossed the track to come to the pit area, was Tom Walkinshaw. And it was brilliantly successful because this hadn't been done before where you, you were actually in the pit lane and you were actually talking, not, not recorded, but talking live to the people that the fans wanted to hear from and idolised was something entirely new. Uh, and then it sort of fizzled out somehow until Martin revived it and does it brilliantly well. Martin revived it. Martin, if you're listening, <laughs> it was, you learn everything from Murray. Now, Murray, believe it or not, China is the 1,000th race 
in Formula One history. So I thought it was perhaps a good, um, the, perhaps a rigorous thing to do would be just to ask you um, for a few of your favourites. So if I was to say during those 1,000 races that go back to the first ever Grand Prix, 13th of May, 1950, Silverstone, World Championship Grand Prix, in that time, favourite driver? Fangio. I knew you were going to say that. Cause yeah. <laughs> what, why Fangio ahead of a Senna or a Schumacher or a Jim Clark? Uh, Tom, it, it, people ask, say, who's the, who's the greatest? Uh, and I always say to them, look, you, I, I can't answer that question because you can't compare drivers of one generation with drivers of another generation when they were driving different cars at different circuits to different rules. Um, you just have to make a subjective judgment uh, and you can try to try to justify it, but if someone thinks passionately about someone else, it's very difficult to challenge them. Why Fangio? Well, uh, he was unique and, and he's still unique in that he... Uh, won five world championships, four of them with different constructors, with Maserati, with Ferrari, uh, with Mercedes-Benz and with Alfa Romeo. Now, admittedly, he did that because he was astute enough to know that he was the best and that he could therefore drive the best car and he therefore used to just have yearly contracts and uh, at the end of the year, he would decide which which constructor he was going to drive for next. Um, but he was a great person as well. It wasn't just that he was a great driver. He was a humble individual who'd come from very ordinary circumstances at Balcarce in Argentina. And he came across to Europe uh, and, and conquered it in a 4CLT Maserati and then got all these works drives, uh, and he was uh, absolutely supreme. The only person who really could hold a candle to him at that time was Sterling Moss, the greatest driver never to have won the World Championship, and much greater than a lot of the ones who did. Let's talk about your personal relationships with drivers. I'm thinking Mansell, uh, I'm thinking Senna. I mean, can you just tell us... In terms of your personal relationships, who you got on best with yeah, and why? Pe uh, people seem to think, Tom, that people in your position and my position are continually hobnobbing, having lunch with, having dinner with, having drinks with, going on holiday with and generally being super-duper friends with top drivers. You know that isn't the case. Uh Nowadays, you have to make an appointment about a fortnight before when you want to talk to a driver. Uh, in my day, it was a lot easier um, because Formula One wasn't as professional and wasn't as far-reaching and wasn't as big a worldwide sport as it is now. I've got a feeling I'm not answering your question, actually. No, you are. You are, because oh. you're just explaining that perhaps you weren't as close to these drivers as the pre people pre perceived precisely. you to be. So, um, but still, you had a relationship the, the, with Nigel. The, 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 my big exception is I, I like to think that I was pretty close, if not very close, to most of the English drivers, uh, particularly my mate Nigel Mansell. Uh, not the easiest person in the world to get on with uh, for a lot of people, but I always found him extremely kind and helpful. And I've stayed, stayed at his home in... Florida when he lived there, I stayed at his home in the Isle of Man when he lived there uh, and we we came up through Formula One together and he's a good old boy, He's a, he was, they called him Il Leone in Italy when he drove for Ferrari and Il Leone means the lion and it was a very good description of Nigel because he is and was lion hearted and I got on extremely well with him. Uh, I got on extremely well with David Coulthard. Was Nigel a generous man? Because some of the people he's worked with say that he was very hard work. I'm talking team people. Your experiences of him was was he was he a, a charming man? 
uh, over a dinner table or how did you find him on a personal one-to-one basis? Well, on a personal one-to-one basis, I got on with him extremely well. But you have to bear in mind that with all of these people, Tom, I was representing the BBC and the BBC was mighty important and still is mighty important. Uh, and not many of them were going to be unpleasant to me but because of that, in irrespective of what we were like on a personal chemistry level. Uh, but quite apart from that, I got on with but But, but Nigel is, well, sorry, was, and I don't suppose he's changed, uh, in many ways a difficult person to get on with. Uh, very thin-skinned, took offence very easily, did you ever criticise him? Get under that skin? Um, I, remember I you can poke- only remember one. Nigel, Nigel used to be very aware of what everything said to him. I think he had a network of friends and informers who came to him and said, do you know you read Sad Sam, Nigel? And Nigel came up to me once and he said, uh, what's this you've been saying about me being boring? I said, uh, Nigel, would I say that you, were, you of all people, were boring? Well, that's what I said, he said. So, I mean, that was the only... Uh, I, I, but I, I, had, I didn't. I was present at a, an occasion, two occasions with Nigel, uh, when we had a young developing producer at the BBC, a chap called Ken Burton, very nice bloke, um, and he was supervising an interview that Nigel and I were to do. And he gets the camera all lined up, and then he says to Nigel, Nigel, would you mind taking your cap off? And Nigel said, I paid a million pounds to wear this cap. No, I won't. So the Nigel, Ken Burton says to the cameraman, no, avoid the cap, avoid the cap. So we did the interview, and it was a back-to-back situation. The next weekend, we were at another Grand Prix, and Ken Burton's got the cameras lined up, and he says to Nigel, I couldn't believe my eyes, ears, Tom, would you mind taking your cap off, Nigel? I can't believe it, says Nigel, and stormed off. I stormed off? Stormed Gosh. off, yeah. And... Uh, so I gave it five minutes and I went to him. I said, look, uh, Nigel, uh, I had a chat with him and uh, we came back and we did the interview. But I had a similar situation, or not dissimilar, with Damon Hill in his championship year when he was working unbelievably hard. He was doing six hours in the gym every day. And I sat down to do... Uh, an interview with him at Portugal uh, and he was looking very peaky, very thin, his cheeks were sunken and his eyes were looking haunted for want of a better description. And I said, Damon, are you all right? You're not overdoing it, are you? What do you say that for, he said, and stormed off. He stormed off. Oh, off, Damon. off, off. So I gave, gave him five minutes and... <laughs> And I went and said, look, Damon, I've obviously offended you and I'm sorry, I was perfect, perfectly unintended. He said, it's all right, Murray. He said, um, I'm okay now. But he said, just before you, I had another chap interviewing me and he said, what would you give to have your father back for just one hour? Now, Damon's father was Graham Hill, double world champion, killed in an air crash dramatically, adversely affected Damon's life. And to ask a question like that at the best of times would have been ill-judged, but in the nervous state that Damon was in with the World Championship in the offing, it was lighting the blue touch paper and standing clear. They're under so much pressure, these guys, aren't they? But I mean, let's talk about Damon, because, of course, I've got to stop because I've got a lump in my throat. It's one of the sort of iconic lines of Murray Walker as he as he won the championship in Japan. People accuse me, uh, Tom, of 
thinking of smart-ass things to say and writing them on the commentary box wall so that I could slot them into the commentary at the appropriate moment. Not true. You're standing there with adrenaline pouring out of you. You're having to interpret the pictures that the viewer is looking at and you're looking at the same pictures as they are uh, so that they know more about and are hopefully interested and entertained in what they're seeing. Uh, and I was very much in, involved with Damon. I, I had been aware of him when he was racing motorcycles at Brands Hatch and became the Brands Hatch 350cc champion. Uh, and then through his mother, Betty, and to a lesser extent through his father, Graham, I was aware of him in his youth. And uh, then, he, then he switched to cars. So when Graham was killed and the Hill family, Betty the mother and Damon the son and the two daughters, Bridget and Samantha, uh, were cast into the wilderness because Graham Hill's insurance was invalidated for a broad variety of reasons and they were on very hard times. So I'd lived all through this, aware of what had happened. And when Damon crossed the line to win the World Championship, after losing it to Schumacher in dubious circumstances in 1994... It really did all well up inside me and quite spontaneously I said, I've got to stop now, I've got a lump in my throat because I, I had genuinely got a lump in my throat. Do you stay in touch with Damon now? I hear from him occasionally and see him occasionally, yes. Top man. Top man. Absolutely top man. Yeah, yeah. I, I second that. Decent, but... kind, humble, jolly good driver, good sense of humour. When he started doing his television work, he was one of two or three people and uh, basically uh, pundits. And um, I used to sit watching the box and Damon was standing there, not really saying anything, but listening to the others. And I was saying to myself, get in there, Damon. You're, you're a pundit. You're supposed to be saying something. And of course now he's changed beyond recognition and he's jolly good at taking the initiative and asking the right questions and genuinely being thoroughly entertaining from the point of view of someone who's not only been there and done that, but done it and become world champion. We'll get back to Murray in a moment. But before we go any further, I wanted to say a huge thank you from all of us at F1, Bose and the Beyond the Grid team. Your support and messages since we launched the podcast have been fantastic and we've had a record start to our second series. It's humbling to hear how much you're all enjoying these interviews all around the world. So keep on sharing your thoughts with us using the F1 Beyond the Grid hashtag. Noise off, focus on continues to be our motto for series two. And that's why as we celebrate F1's 1000th race, we have a special treat in store. 10, yes, 10 lucky listeners are going to be the recipients of their very own pair of Bose QC35-2 wireless headphones. If you get your name called out, then rest in the knowledge that soon you'll be receiving a special package which will allow you to experience the superb 20 hours battery life that these headphones can provide. You can lose yourself in the capabilities of the world-class noise reduction technology that Bose is renowned for, and you can test out the Amazon Alexa and Google Assistant functions all for yourself. I'll be announcing five listeners' names now, and the final five at the end of my chat with Murray. So here we go. Thank you to Nick Walker, who said Carlos Sainz was a phenomenal interview and that the humility and professionalism of Carlos is just what McLaren needs for the long term. Awesome guy, despite his indifference to Milton Keynes. <laughs> well, Nick, yeah, indeed. Now, number two, Grokul on Twitter, who shared that he was listening to the Luca de Montezemolo episode while driving to work and was constantly checking his mirrors for honking cars. Well, we'll keep the honks to a minimum in future, Grokul. Sarah Jones, sorry to hear that you've been hobbling around after your biking accident, but I'm glad you enjoyed the chat with Gunter Steiner and I hope it helped distract you from some of your pain. Get better soon. And Daniel Johnson loved listening to the Iceman Kimi Raikkonen and said that he's a breath of fresh air. Well, I can confirm, Daniel, that the interview was as much fun as it sounded. 
And finally, a huge thank you to Michael Gull, who set up a Twitter account to say the following. What an epic two episodes of Beyond the Grid. Serious insights from Luca and DC. Series two is a step above series one. Keep it up, Tom. Well, we will as long as you keep listening. More details on the QC35 twos can be found at bose.com. But first, let's get back to more incredible insights from the great Murray Walker. For all, of course, Damon is intrinsically linked to Senna, Ayrton Senna. And Murray, one thing that always struck me is when circumstances got very difficult, a driver was killed, for example, you always said the right thing. You got the tone right. And I'm thinking specifically of Imola 94 when we lost Roland Ratzenberger and Ayrton Senna. Um, Just your memories of that weekend and how difficult it was to say the right thing. Uh... Very difficult indeed, Tom. Uh, there again, because I had been doing it as long as I had been doing it, and because I was doing Formula 2 as well and Formula 3 and Formula Ford and all the other things, I used to catch these drivers right at the beginning of their careers. And I did with Ayrton Senna in 1982 when he was winning everything in Formula Ford. So I was been aware of his career and very much so, and interviewed him umpteen times. Uh, and I, I going to be slightly long-winded. Does that matter from the of point not. of view? We have plenty. Um, the microphone's yours. Uh, in in the winter of nineteen ninety three, uh, I had got out some tapes. I have done of the iconic year 1983 in Formula 3 when Senna and Martin Brundle were battling for the title. Senna won it, but Martin won a lot of the races and only just failed to win it himself. Uh, and I re- and I realised at that time I had been talking about Ayrton Senna. And I had become sloppy like a lot of people and was now calling him Ayrton Senna. So I resolved in 1994 that I would use his correct pronunciation of his Christian name. So in the first race of the year, which was uh, Aida in Japan, if I remember correctly. Uh, that was the second. No, first race was Interlagos, I think. Sorry, the first yeah. race was Interlagos. Home race right. for Senna, yeah. Uh, and Senna spun out and Schumacher won. The second race was at Aida and um, Senna got turfed off by either Hakkinen or Larini, I can't remember which it was. Uh, and um, so we are now at San Marino, the first European race. And I sat down with Senna and said, um, well, uh, well, Ayrton. I said, um, Two races down, you haven't got any points. Schumacher's got 20. What's to do? What happened to Ayrton, he said. <laughs> I said, how on, how on earth do you know about that? You're in the car when I'm talking. Oh, he said, I keep in touch, Murray. And, and that was a typical example of how Senna had got his finger in every pie right up to the hilt and... Uh, knew a lot, a hell of a lot of what was going on. Now, is Senna the greatest of all time? Not to me, he's not. A brilliant, charismatic, superb person in so many ways, but so utterly determined to win, do what may and cost what it may, that he did some highly reputable things like crowding Prost at Imola like taking Prost off in Japan um, and uh, I think didn't he overst- you think he overstepped them up I, I mean he, on those he, occasions he, he did, did but, overstep but, them up yeah. uh, what he did in Japan was absolutely outrageous Yeah. did you say that to him did you uh, ever say that to him no I didn't but 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 
in, in Australia, um, the end of the season it was then, uh, Jackie Stewart was doing an interview with Senna before, one before me. And Jackie was absolutely brilliant. He just took Senna apart. Uh, and Senna lost his temper with him. Is that when Senna said, he called him, didn't call him Jackie, he said, Stuart, Stuart, yes. Stuart if well, you don't go for a gap, you are no longer a racing driver. Is that, is that's that, the, that's yeah, the interview with Jackie? That, yeah. That's it, that's it. Um, so I, I then had to follow Jackie Stewart, who did it immeasurably better than I would have done anyway, with an outraged Senna, but um, he'd, he'd similar. And I, to, to, to be perfectly honest with you, I hadn't got the guts to, to, to do it a second time. So the answer is no. But it was... Now, don't use the word tragedy, the BBC say. Senna's death at Imola was a tragedy. Um, as you've pointed out, we... <coughs> We we had Rubens Barrichello having a nigh unto death crash on the Friday. We had Roland Ratzenberger being killed on Saturday, uh, and um, so um, when the race started at um, at Imola at San Marino, <coughs> and. Um, I just tried to remember who it was that went into the back of J.J. Leto. Martini? Pedro Lamy, maybe? Pardon? Was it Pedro Lamy? Yes, it was Pedro Lamy, that's at right. At the start? Yeah, mm. yeah, uh, at the start, uh, as a result of which the safety car came out. Now, with all the wisdom of hindsight, they should have stopped the race, not bring the safety car out. And the safety car in those days was not a specially souped-up Mercedes-Benz driven by a highly talented driver, as it is now. It was whatever was around, like a Fiat Punto, um, driven by somebody who got some talent, but uh, the Formula One cars were trundling round for several laps while they cleared up the debris, and um, as a result of which the tyre temperatures went down, uh, as a result of which the ride height went down of the cars, they were closer to the ground. Uh, when the race started, again, with uh, Schumacher and Senna vying for the lead, uh, Senna, Senna went off. And my first reaction, Tom, was, wow, that's a big one, which sounds pretty casual. But I, I said that because I had seen on other years at exactly the same corner, the Tamburello, um, Michele Alboreto go off and was all right. Nelson Pico go off, hurt his foot, but he was all right. Gerhard Berger not only go off, but to be in the car with it on fire. And I was thinking I'm talking about someone who's been done to Chris before our very eyes uh, they got him out so my first instinctive reaction I think was uh, it hasn't been too bad in the past it probably won't be too bad now but then I rapidly realised when Professor Sid Watkins the, the FIA's medical chap who was absolutely brilliant came out, the race was stopped the body language was very ominous uh, and I didn't know what was happening because I was in the commentary box and there wasn't anybody to tell me. I had pictures from Rai, the Italian television company, coming into the box, but which were not the, not the nicest and wouldn't have been shown by the BBC. But literally for the first time, the BBC had got its own camera unit there. So Mark Wilkin, the producer, was able to cut away to less uh, worrying pictures. Uh, but I had to walk the tightrope between, don't worry, folks, it'll be all right. I've seen three others go off at the same point and they were perfectly all right. He'll soon be back. 
and, oh dear, I, I fear this is terminal. You don't say that sort of thing. Uh, somehow or other, you, you have to find the words to uh, walk that tightrope between the two. Uh, and then he was taken away in the helicopter and the race was started. But um, the atmosphere of gloom and misery at what many people regard as the greatest driver of all time, almost certainly being about to die and subsequently doing so, uh, was immeasurable. Let's, um, let's move on to some other topics now, I think. Um, favourite race over these, your career? Australia. <laughs> oh, I love Australia. <laughs> yeah. Adelaide or Melbourne? Uh, Adelaide, actually. Uh, yeah. it, it, it's difficult to put a cigarette paper between them, but Adelaide is smaller. Uh, I'm not going to say friendlier because Melbourne was very friendly too. Uh, but it was it was the different the, the indefinable difference between the Formula One race being everything to Adelaide and the the Formula One race subconsciously being another major sporting confrontation. Uh, in Melbourne with tennis and lots of other things yep. against it. Um, but either venue was absolutely brilliant and I love the Australians, I love the country, I love the food, I love the whole attitude about the place. My wife, who lived there and was educated there, says it's all very well for you because you've only been there when you you have been the chap that talked to them about the Formula One that they were passionately interested in and they made a gigantic fuss of you. You haven't been there in an Australian summer when the temperatures are 45 degrees and not at all pleasant. And she was perfectly right. Mm. But uh, who cares? I mean, I, I, I still think it's <laughs> fabulous. Is there a favourite season that you, you reflect on where the, the uh, racing you enjoyed eight, the most? 82. It's got to be 82. Um, no, just a minute. It hasn't got to be 82. 76 takes a hell of a lot of beating. James. Uh, was, 76 was the James Hunt year, of course, um, when uh, he won in Spain and then got disqualified because the rear wing was an eighth of an inch or something too wide. Uh, and then he, Murray, your memory is pinned sharp. It's, it's he, he, you're 95 he, years old, and you can remember <laughs> all these things like it was yesterday. And then he won. He won. Won the British Grand Prix after it had been stopped, and the crowd made such a fuss that they had to restart the race or yeah. risk a riot. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I was doing the BBC radio uh, pit lane. Uh, interviewing and James came rushing past me on his way from getting out of the car back to the pits and I tried to stop him to do an interview very stupid thing to do actually and he says there's a race on old boy there's a race on <laughs> and got got in, got in the refixed car that um, Alistair Cordwell and his mates at Marlborough had uh, managed to do while keeping the FIA officials occupied by making protests and generally being difficult to give themselves time. Uh, and then James won the British Grand Prix, only to have that disallowed. And then you had the Nicky Lauda uh, crash at the Nürburgring, which ended uh, his career with Ferrari and very nearly ended his life. And finally, you had the incredible situation at Monza. No, not finally, almost but finally. Well, Lauda came back almost literally from the dead and finished well in the points in a blood-soaked blood crash helmet uh, and then drove in the race that was going to decide the championship, the last race of the year in Japan at Fuji. Uh, the weather conditions were so appalling that he had the guts, the courage to, to pull out of the race and say, my life matters more than the championship. Uh, and, and James won. And it was another dramatic situation where 
he got a puncture and had to come in. Anyway, 1976 was a hell of a year. Uh, but then, then... And as you said earlier, Murray, it seems that 76 was so integral in, in persuading the BBC to take the sport. Yeah, it was, it was so because it was, of... It was pivotal in so many ways. It was because it? it was such a wonderful year and because it was James and because he was British, uh, the, the public suddenly became aware of Formula One, really aware of Formula One, um, and the BBC started to televise it. And it was because the BBC started to televise it that Formula One became as popular worldwide as it did, I'm as it has. I'm interested that when I posed that question, you immediately came back and said, 82, of course, Keke Rosberg's championship, but tragedy as well with Gilles Villeneuve's death and Didier Peroni as well having a bad accident in the Ferrari. What was it about 82 that stood out? Um, Monaco, uh, when, um, we had, I think, four different drivers leading in the last couple of laps, because first of all, Alain Prost was leading, uh, and cra crashed out, uh, and then his place was taken by Ricardo Patrese, as in the closing stage, and I mean the last lap but one, Ricardo Patrese in the Brabham, who lost it on the way down to the hairpin. Uh, and then Didier Pironi took over in the Ferrari, only to, I can't remember whether it was a petrol starvation or an electrical fall, but he, his, his car stopped in the tunnel. Uh, so briefly, believe it or not, Andrew de Cesaris was in the lead. Uh, and, and then he, he retired. Uh, the race that no one wanted to win, wasn't Wonder it? of wonder, Derek Daly in the Williams uh, is now leading. Uh, and and uh, he lost a rear wing at the Rascas, I think. Uh, and meantime, Ricardo Patrese had regained and won the race. And there's never been a race like that before. It was extraordinary, definitely. Now, the favourite race, you said, was Adelaide. But what about a favourite circuit? Favourite circuit, I th think, uh, I'm hard put, but I think it has to be Spa. Partly for personal emotional reasons. My father raced the Bel in the Belgian Grand Prix at Spa with great success. And that was at a time, of course, when it was the really long circuit, not the shorter one that they have now for safety reasons. Um, but Spa in the Ardennes is a, still, a, even though it's been shortened, a, a brilliant circuit, uh, almost a public road circuit uh, in glorious surroundings. The Belgians have the best food in Europe. Uh, Chips. <laughs> and it's almost invariably a, a thumping good race. I mean, it's, it's the race that Damon Hill won for Jordan to prove that he could win a race in more than one for for, for more than one constructor although he he damn nearly won for Arrows uh, won there for Williams as well do you remember didn't you weren't you in the Arden in the war as well yes uh, I was um, I was in a tank regiment as I think I said earlier on and um uh, yeah, uh, they, it was the Battle of the Bulge uh, where Hitler's last despairing throw was to chuck the whole of the weight of the Western Wehrmacht against uh, Britain and try to try to get through to the Channel Coast as they had done in Dunkirk years earlier. Uh, and... Uh, I was, we were a reserve regiment waiting to go in, but the Americans did an absolutely brilliant job. There was a general called, uh, General McAuliffe, Nuts McAuliffe, they used to use him because they, they thought he was nuts. Uh, and the Germans had him in an impossible situation and they demanded his, his uh, ret retirement. Uh, surrender, sorry, that's the word I'm looking for. Nuts, he said. Uh, and uh, the, the Americans brought, managed to bring up reinforcements and won, and that was basically the end of the beginning as far as Hitler and uh, 
the German Wehrmacht were concerned on the Western Front. And that was all around near Spa. From then on, we um, we broke through, and uh, I had uh, a, an absolutely unbelievable experience of driving across Germany, chasing the retreating German army, and being instructed by the 21st Army Group. We were the lead regiment of the British Army, and we had instructions to get to Lübeck before the Russians, because Lübeck on the uh, east coast of Schleswig-Holstein Peninsula uh, controlled the access to Denmark, Finland, Sweden and Norway, and whoever got there first was going to be in a strong position. Uh, we got we we did an eighty mile march in the last day, which in a tank is unbelievable. Uh, and um, we linked up with the Russians. We were the first regi- first British unit in the regi- in the army to do so. And the first Russians we saw were three of them on a German captured BMW motorcycle outfit with. Uh, a squaddy at the handlebars, an officer on the pillion, and a, a Russian woman soldier in the sidecar. And we did all the fraternising bit, thumbs up, and, th- and they were saying, Lubeck, Lubeck. And we were saying, oh, we're in Lubeck, mate. We're, <laughs> we're there first. Up yours. <laughs> and, and you like that. How funny that it was a motorcycle as well, your yes. first passion yes. as well. Yes. Keeps coming back to that, doesn't it? Um, final thoughts just on, on sort of the big picture of Formula One. Is there a favourite team that you, you've enjoyed watching, fraternising with, people you knew, people you respected? Is there a favourite team? Uh, yes. Williams. Um, what a romantic story that is. Hopefully not with a sad ending. Uh, but I saw Williams from when Frank Williams and Piers Courage were a one-car team, and then uh, Frank went, went with the Tommaso and subsequently founded his own team, got Patrick Head aboard, built this incredible organisation as a private owner that won so many world championships for drivers and constructors, uh, only to fall on the hard times that they're in now. And I hope and pray that they're going to be able to fight their way out of it. But it's going to be terribly difficult against the moneyed might of Mercedes-Benz and Ferrari and Red Bull and, to a lesser extent, Renault and even some of the others. But there have been some wonderful times. Nigel Mansell, Nelson Piquet, Keke Rosberg, uh, David Coulthard and all, all the rest of them driving for Williams, not the least of whom, of course, was Ayrton Senna and Damon Hill. So that's my answer. Williams and uh, God be with them and I hope they manage to pull themselves up by their bootstraps. What does the next thousand races hold for Formula One? What would you like? Which direction would you like to see the it's sport? It's going to change, Tom. I'm not sure about in what direction it's going to change because when I started, the driver had the engine in front of him. He was wearing cotton overalls and a skull cap. Uh, there were no runoff areas. There was no armco. The medical facilities were minimal. Uh, and the whole of the top half of the driver stuck out of the top of the car. Uh, look at it now. They drive around in safety cells with lots of armco, with runoff areas, with brilliant medical facilities, with halos and all the rest of it. Thank heavens. Uh, now, the first question is, is it still going to be an internal combustion engine or is it going to be electricity? I find it very difficult to generate any enthusiasm about Formula E, to be honest, because part of the great part of the attraction of Formula One is the noise. And uh, 
to hear something whining past you is not the same as hearing a full-blooded V12 or even as they are now, a turbocharged engine. So it's going to change and, and, and uh, I don't know in what direction it's going to change, whether it will continue as some sort of internal combustion formula uh, or whether it will become electrical. Uh, if it becomes electrical, I think I have lived through the best of it. Well, Murray, what a fascinating chat. Thank you very much. What a what an eclectic and amazing life you've lived. Nice to talk to you, Tom. And if I may uh, return the praise, I remember vividly when in my ham-fisted uh, unfamiliarity with modern digital techniques, I used to write, write my race stories. And, and because I was incompetent enough to send them back to HQ electronically, you used to type them up for me and send them through. And I have never, ever forgotten that. And I have forever been grateful to you. Thank you very much. Well, Murray, that's very kind. My typing is really not that good. <laughs> it was good enough. <laughs> Murray, we've had a lot of fun over the years. Um, now, I thought, just as an out, for, for the young'uns listening to this, they have missed out by not listening to you call the start of a race. Is there any chance, just as we leave this podcast, you could say, and it's over to you, Murray. So watch the lights. It's five lights, four lights, three lights, two lights, one light. Go, go, go. And I'll go. Murray, thank you very much. Unless I'm very much mistaken, that was the legend that is Murray Walker. It was such a privilege to spend time with him and to see him looking so well. After we'd finished the recording, we went to the pub for lunch and he regaled me with more stories from his long and very full life. And that voice, I don't know about you, but I got goosebumps as he launched into commentary mode at the end. Murray, thanks for your time and I hope we'll see you at a racetrack again soon. And finally, here's the moment you've been waiting for. The final five, the lucky listeners who will be receiving a shiny pair of Bose QC35 II wireless headphones. Thanks to Noshi, who said, if F1 runs in your blood, you should be listening to F1 Beyond the Grid. This podcast keeps on giving. Thanks, Noshi. Andrew Morris was kind enough to say thanks for another excellent podcast. I've spent the last month listening to all the F1 Beyond the Grids while traveling to work. Loving the insight into Formula One history and the environment, especially the episode with DC. Gary Honey messaged us wondering what content has been edited due to time constraints. Well, that will have to be our little secret, I'm afraid, Gary. And thank you to Gino Lupini for allowing us to keep you company on the train to work and for your note. I've just finished the F1 Beyond the Grid back catalogue, he says. Finishing with the amazing life of Luca de Montezemolo. What a passionate and emotional man. A true hot-blooded Italian. Yes, indeed, Gino. And finally, Hannah Collins, who wrote in saying, I'm not a Schumacher fan, and then Team Villeneuve in brackets in 97. But it was a fascinating insight into a clearly private man. I love this podcast. Tom Clarkson F1 does a great job. That's very kind of you, Hannah. Very kind indeed. Keep talking to us using the F1 Beyond the Grid hashtag or tweet me at Tom Clarkson F1. Thanks again to each and every one of you for your support so far. Well, that's it for now. All that remains is for me to say, if you haven't already subscribed to Beyond the Grid, why not do so now so you never miss an episode? We're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and tons of other podcast platforms. See you next week for another chat with a big name from the world of F1. Beyond the Grid is produced by F1 in association with Audioboom. Until next time, keep it flat out. <laughs>